It's another Sport Bloke special. This week, we take time to look at a couple of cracking chokes, including Chris Webber proving that Wolverines can produce howlers <laughs> and the Atlanta Falcons forgetting the real meaning of run to the title. Oh, they sure do, Stewie. A lot of fun again. Let's go. It's 10.03 on Tuesday, the 8th of March, 2022. It's another special. Now, we have no idea when we'll release this. As always, we record these as kind of little backups for whenever. Well, in this case, when one of us or both of us eventually get COVID. So get well soon, Nathan. Yeah, get well soon, Shui. Or possibly, uh, or possibly maybe. Yeah, yeah. Whatever it might be. Congratulations on your new job or something. And the birth That's of, nicer than... The birth of your third child. <laughs> third? Yeah. Okay, well, apparently we're going to go a long time before we release this then, given I don't have any. Triplets. <laughs> oh, yeah, tri- I'm not congratulating you <laughs> on the first two. They're terrible. <laughs> Just the third one. Uh, so we'll forget about fictional children and instead talk about jokes once again. And I guess the reason we provide that context in the intro here is we do like to talk about what's going on at the moment. We had a bloody hell fall into our laps this, uh, well, today, let alone this week. <laughs> we did, we? yeah. But there are a couple of things today as well, actually. So it's interesting, Shui, I think they just always seem to be around chokes. So, for example, we just recorded this week in sport for next week's episode. We're going to get all matrixy if we try and think about when and where things happen. But we talked about India struggling in the semi-final of the 1996 World Cup. They, what was that? They lost seven for 22 or seven something? Seven for 22. We might need to revisit that as a potential choke. In the NBA today, the Sacramento Kings were outscored by the New York Knicks 83 to 52 in the second half to choke away a match. Well, Mr. Randall was well and truly on fire yes, in that one. Yes, he had a big one, didn't he? 46. Yeah, yeah. So there's always examples of choking, and we'll continue to explore that today. Now, one of the things I was thinking about in getting ready for this episode was the idea of an individual choking on a team versus the idea of basically an entire team choking. In our first choke special, we looked at Sally Robbins at the 2004 Olympics and the heat that she took for letting the rest of her team down on the biggest stage imaginable. In the same episode, though, we looked at the 2013 San Antonio Spurs. I'm sorry to bring it up again, though. <laughs> yeah. But how so many different minute factors from so many different people, like a missed free throw here, a missed rebound there, contributes to the toughest of tough losses, but also how it galvanized that team to play one of the most dominant finals we've ever seen the year after. Mm. So each heartbreaking loss that a team takes can have such vastly different repercussions depending on the circumstances. Absolutely. Now, in the case of Sally Robbins, she was an outcast. She never competed at that level again. Even if she'd been able to, it would have been four years before she would have had the chance. For the Spurs, though, their next season started mere months later, and they knew they were good enough to beat Miami, and that's exactly what they did. But today, we have two new team chokes that explore that very notion. Our first looks at a highly touted future NBA player losing his head at the worst possible time, while the second looks at one of the more unlosable games, but through an all-time legend, their opponent roars back for an unbelievable victory. And both of them have really rough legacies on the players involved. Now, speaking of legacy, Stewie, these choke specials, they're cursed, I think. Because choke special one we had to re-record because of issues. We're re-recording this, I think, what, is this nearly a third time? Yep. <laughs> I forgot to hit record earlier this evening. So we've had to re-record bits. So, geez, we'll, we'll plow through them. <laughs> and unfortunately, as a result of that, it means that I haven't watched the games as recently as I did last time we recorded, but I have learned some more details along the way, so hopefully it'll still be a good episode. Ooh, even better. So, shall we just kick off? Yeah, so we'll start off with the 1993 NCAA Basketball National Championship game between the Michigan Wolverines and the North Carolina Tar Heels, and a choke from one Chris Webber. Or more accurately, Stewie, Mace Edward Christopher Webber III. Yeah, not many people know his first name's Mace. <laughs> 
I, I don't know what to do with that. It's, it's just <laughs> such a horrible name. I'm sorry, Chris, but that's, I know why you go by Chris. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> you think his parents choked? Well, <laughs> maybe, maybe on the mace, yeah. <laughs> it's just funny you say that, Nate. I have actually pepper sprayed myself before. Why? Uh, <laughs> so, you know, when you're younger and stupid. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Yes. So I was dating a girl at the time who had pepper spray on her. And of course. Trying to impress her. Me being much. Oh, yeah. I want to see what it's like. It can't be that bad. It can't be that bad. And if you've ever seen anybody do this, there's this moment. Like basically I rubbed it on my hands, rubbed it on my eyes. Oh, mate. And there were a couple of seconds where I was like, Oh, it's not so bad. It's not. Oh, <laughs> I will never see again. <laughs> and so I'm borderline screaming in pain. <laughs> Thankfully, we were at the beach. And so I was able to run half blind, basically, to the nearest toilets. I was going to say, what, salt water? Yeah, that no, would no, no. Just I, I went, went to the toilets and soaked my towel under the tap and just held it on my eyes for about 10, 15 minutes. Oh, it is the worst pain imaginable. And I, I don't care what any woman says about childbirth. Oh, is it worse than losing the national championship, Stewie? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> It's pretty bad. Oh, so dear. maybe don't do that. Yes. Because you, yes, you do you do yes. choke with that. Any kids don't don't pepper spray yourself. Absolutely, you will choke. So going into the championship game, Chris Weber and the University of Michigan Wolverine side, known as the Fab Five, were, I don't want to say expected to win, but certainly it wouldn't have been surprising had they won. They're an incredibly top quality team. They had been dominant throughout the regular season and throughout the entire tournament. Well, indeed, they made the championship game the year before, albeit losing to Duke in a bit of a blowout, but they were all freshmen. The other two, of course, being Ray Jackson and Jimmy King to make up the Fab Five. Yeah. So they had multiple future NBA stars, Jalen Rose, Jawan Howard, and of course, Chris Webber. Now, this isn't your atypical choke because North Carolina was still a very, very good, well-drilled side. Absolutely, they were. And they had their own NBA players, including Eric Montross and George Lynch. It's interesting you say that, Stewie, because George Lynch and Derek Phelps said on the Field of 68 Shining Moments podcast that they didn't think it was a choke because they said the Tar Heels were better. And in that interview, they said that they didn't cut the nets down after winning the semis because they knew their job wasn't done. So traditionally, teams will cut down the nets in the semis, and if they win the final, they get to cut the nets down twice. But those Tar Heels decided not to because they were convinced they were going to win. And that's fair enough. I mean, if you look at the earlier game between the two teams in the, in the season, Michigan beat North Carolina, but it was on a putback by Jalen Rose at the buzzer. So it was a close game. However, ultimately, when so many people talk about March Madness, the true madness occurred on this day in April and ultimately cost Michigan a real shot at the title. Oh, sure did. Now, this is a really interesting one because unbeknownst to me at the time, this is actually one of the first, if not first, college basketball game I ever saw. So I got into basketball 91-92, started with the Wildcats, fell in love with the Spurs in 1992, and then I got to the point where I just wanted basketball all the time, anywhere I could get it, and of course I started watching these NCAA games. So I think it was Don Lane would host on ABC and my parents would tape it for me and I watched the tape. So my memory is of the dunks. Uh, Weber had a couple of really nice jams in it, but I can in my mind's eye see myself sitting in the living room of the house we lived in at the time and him kind of shaping for a timeout, deciding against it, dragging his feet. I can picture it and I can picture myself watching it. So it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, I have probably a very similar sort of memory to you. I think we kind of both got into basketball about the same time. And I do remember, funnily enough, watching that game on some form of a replay. I think it was on the ABC back in the days and watching it with my old man and sitting there at the time. And 
again, I sort of, I got into sport probably, oh, I don't know, maybe a couple of years before that. And I kind of knew what was going on. I, I was, I wouldn't say fanatical. I was certainly collecting the basketball cards and all that sort of stuff, but this was definitely the first game of college hoops I watched. And same deal. I, I, again, we're getting to the end of the game and I'm sort of watching with dad and he's reacting to things and I'm kind of reacting and learning as we go. And, and obviously we're only nine at the time. So we weren't ancient, hmm. uh, but it, we it was still, an interesting we still, first exposure yeah. to the NCAA for me. We're, like, we're yeah. still young. As well, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. so not only is this a fascinating game in the context of a choke, but it's just Chris Webber and the whole Fab Five is just a fascinating cultural moment in the sport of basketball. So they brought in the long pants and the black socks. Actually, it was Ray Jackson, I believe, who wanted to kind of have those uniforms. And most coaches would have said, no, you're sticking to the old tiny John Stockton's and the white socks. But to his credit, Coach Fisher actually said, yeah, no, fair enough. Express yourselves with those uniforms, but only if the whole team wears them. So I really like that unity. But a really important moment, Chris Webber's career is fascinating in so many ways. And we'll get to that a moment in the legacy thing. But I just thought I'd quote from a Rick Buecher article from a while back, which is called 25 Years After the Timeout, How Should We Remember Chris Webber? So he asks, what do you remember most? Webber's two NCAA championship appearances or the timeout? His leadership of the Fab Five or his indictment for perjury and obstruction of justice in relation to an FBI probe into the loans he accepted from a Michigan booster. His NBA Rookie of the Year campaign for the Golden State Warriors, or his franchise-melting feud with coach and general manager Don Nelson. His first All-Star season that helped the Washington Bullets clinch their first playoff berth in nine years, or the multiple misdemeanors, later dismissed, that he received while driving to practice. His role in transforming the hapless Sacramento Kings into a Western Conference force, or the fact that it all happened in the shadow of the three-peat Lakers, led by Kobe Bryant, and Shaquille O'Neal. It's kind of a mixed bag for me. I mean, certainly you remember the timeout a lot more than them making those multiple championship games. I certainly remember his Rookie of the Year campaign a lot more than him feuding with Don Nelson. And I certainly remember him being phenomenal for Sacramento. But probably almost as much I do remember, obviously, those Lakers three-peat teams. I probably, Got a bit of help. <laughs> I probably, yeah, I mean, I probably remember Kobe Bryant elbowing Mike Bibby in the face a lot more than I remember a lot of the other stuff as well. So, Well, and also the refs giving them a million free throws to basically screw the Kings out of a championship, basically. I think they would have gone on oh, to win. Of course. Yeah. And, yeah. and we talked about this literally on Friday night. A Sacramento-New Jersey final series, we think would have been phenomenal. Oh, it would have been great. Mike, yeah. Mike Bibby and Jason Kidd. Chris Weber and Kenyon Martin, Richard Jefferson and Doug Christie. Like there's so many. And Pager Stoyakovich. Vladdy Divac. Um, even a lot Bobby of, Jackson yeah, I was always a big yeah, fan of. A lot of the yeah. guys off the bench. Lucius Harris was really good back then. He was there. handy, yeah. It was Aaron Williams Aaron, on that team. Aaron Williams was yeah, on that team. Good he, rebounder, yeah. He yeah. had uh, the, the big matchup of Vladdy Divac and Todd McCulloch. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of really good matchups individually and also team matchups. It would have been a great series. And I'm spewing that the Lakers got through. Well, it's funny because I saw on Twitter the other day someone talking about Kobe in that series. And then there were all these comments going, uh, do you actually watch the series? Because the refs absolutely screwed the Kings. But anyway, that's another story that for is. another time. That is. So if we fast forward right to the end of this game, because this is obviously where all the action happens. Chris Webber's just scored on a putback to cut the Tar Heels lead to one. Pat Sullivan was fouled for North Carolina and he missed the second of two free throws. Webber secured the rebound. And it was a very good rebound too, a key rebound at a key time. But then George Lynch jumps into the passing lane and kind of caused Webber to hesitate. Fairly clearly travelling, I think. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So my memory was that it was an absolute clear travel. But last time we recorded for this in our failed attempt, 
you and I both watched the footage several times and it is pretty borderline. You could actually make the argument that, uh, okay, it's a no call. And apparently the umpires absolutely shit a brick when they hear this noise of the crowd because it's like, well, what have we missed? What have we missed? I'm glad you say that, Stewie, because I've got an interesting quote here from Ryan McGee's article, Reliving Chris Webber's timeout that Michigan didn't have. So ref Tom Harrington, the seven-time Final Four veteran, he was along the baseline beneath Michigan's basket when Webber dragged his foot and probably travelled. So from the article, it says, Harrington recalled seeing the UNC bench's reaction, hearing the screams from the crowd and thinking, oh no, what did we miss? His crewmate Jim Stupin was the official who didn't make the call. North Carolina get the ball right there up too, Harrington said, but it's still just a two-point game. The truth is we didn't even know about it until we were in the locker room after the game. That's where Hank Nichols, then NCAA supervisor of officials, informed them of the miss and said, you guys did a great job, but you have to be lucky sometimes. If Michigan had won that game, everyone tonight wouldn't be talking about the teams, they'd be talking about us. Now, the funny thing is, Shuey, given the penalty for a failed timeout, the travel might have been a better outcome for the Wolverines. Absolutely, it would have been. And so obviously, after all of that happens, we get to the next phase of the play. Weber dribbles all the way up into the corner, right in front of his own bench, and calls timeout. And this is fascinating. Weber is clearly inconsolable. He's nearly in tears on the sideline. But there's still a game on, a game they could actually still technically win. So his teammates are trying, basically, I think you said last time we recorded everyone but Juwan Howard from memory. His teammates are trying to kind of perk him up and say, dude, like, head in the game. we got to keep going here. We can't just give up now. But he really struggled, didn't he, in that timeout? So what I have learned in, I guess, postponing this recording or having to redo it, I watched some more stuff last night. Now, what's really interesting is apparently, even though everyone has initially said that they knew they didn't have a timeout, the the history on that's a bit interesting. So going back to the Ryan McGee article, Jalen Rose said, everyone on our team knows the play at this point. And coach Steve Fisher had drawn it up again during our last timeout with about two minutes remaining. Chris is going to get the rebound off a miss, outlet it to me, I'll take it up, try and get a three-pointer off a pick and roll. If they bottle that up, then I'll swing it to Chris to take the shot. If his man shows, then he can swing it to Jimmy King or Rob Palinka in the corners. That's our play. Now, funnily enough, people will will know the name Rob Palinka because he's now the GM of the Lakers and he used to be a super agent. I think he was Kobe's agent, hey? I think that's how he got I think that's how he got in. He actually played really well in this game and he actually knocked down two really big threes at the beginning of the game, then followed by a Jalen three. So he actually helped kickstart their offense a little bit early in the game. It's definitely worth watching. I'd encourage those that haven't seen it or haven't seen it for a long time to go back. It's all there on YouTube. It's a very entertaining game. I don't think the lead ever blows out to more than six either way. So definitely worth watching. So Nath, let's talk about the penalty a little bit. It's a pretty harsh one. Oh, it's huge. And I guess for me, the majority of what I have in my head goes back to the 1976 NBA finals between the Suns and the Celtics. And game five, arguably the best game in the history of the NBA. Quadruple overtime? Triple overtime. Triple overtime. Yep. Now, in this game, at the end of one of the overtimes, John Havlicek's hit this really tough bank shot to to give the Celtics a one-point lead. There's about a second left on the clock. After all the mayhem, the Suns kind of realize, oh, we don't really want to try an inbound from here to to get a decent (laughs) shot up here. They want to advance. So we want to advance the ball. The only way that we can do that is to take a timeout, but they didn't have any. And so the rule in the NBA back then was it's a one-shot technical foul, but the team that called the timeout keeps the ball. So in this case, the Suns give up that one shot. The shot goes in. It's a two-point game. They then hit a shot and tie the game and send it to another overtime. 
Now that you almost wonder if that's too soft a penalty, and maybe the right penalty lays somewhere in between because yeah. the NCAA penalty is too harsh. I think. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So I think two shots, but retaining the balls probably the right. Yeah, the I right think sort so too. Yeah, I think so. And now. What happens here? So you've got Donald Williams playing for North Carolina, who's one of the best shooters in the entire tournament. He hits two, puts North Carolina up by four. And he had a great game and a great final four as well. He was hitting threes left, right and center. Now, North Carolina get the ball back. They get the ball back to Williams and he gets fouled again, hits another two. It's now a six-point game. Yeah. And this is, business here, this is the point where Weber and I think a lot of people wish that maybe they had seen that travel and called it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All it's of, amazing. Yeah, all of a sudden, Carolina's got the ball with 17 seconds left, but it might only end it's up... It's pretty much insurmountable yeah, now. Yeah, it might, it might only end up being a three or four-point game instead of a six-point game yep. with a handful of seconds left. Yeah. And so with the foul, they still have a chance, I guess, is what I'm saying. So let's look at the aftermath, Stewie. I've got some more quotes here, this time again from Ryan McGee, and he spoke to Eric Montross. There were two guys who had their way all night, and that was Donald Williams and Chris Webber. Eric Montross, the UNC centre, recorded of his teammate who had 25 points. Montross was no slouch himself with 16 points in the middle. You kind of knew it might come down to one of those two making the play that iced the game. Sure did, just not the way anyone could have foreseen. Continuing on from that, Montross said, I think there's a part of us that wished the timeout had never happened. Even if it's only a really, really small part, he said with a laugh. The truth is we're in really good shape, even if that doesn't happen. That's basically the basketball equivalent of a player apologizing when the ball hits the net in tennis. <laughs> yes. Oh, sorry, mate. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, sorry, bull- but I'm glad I won the point. Bullshit, you're sorry. <laughs> so straight after the game is the press conference. And what a lot of people forget is that Chris did attend the press conference and I think he actually handled himself quite well. And another thing that we need to mention, these guys are young. They're kids, basically. They're, they're sophomores, so they're what, maybe 20 ish? Yeah. They don't, so, they don't look it because. No, they don't. The they time, don't. I mean, Chris Webber's what, like six foot 10? Yeah. yeah. Juan Howard looks come, older. There's come quite out a lot. Of stone. They, yeah. they got these big, thick mustaches and everything. Like, <laughs> you're right. They're only in their Ugh. 20s, early 20s. So going back to the McGee article again, this time Juan Howard. They said, he needs to go out for the press conference, Howard remembered. I told him, you can do this, man. We will do it together. And he went up on that stage. People never remember Chris doing that. He sat up there a few minutes after the worst moment in his life and he answered those questions. People want to rip him for not addressing it since, but he did it that night. That's big. It is big because it absolutely shattered him. Jalen Rose tells a story of the team allowing Weber's parents to join them on the bus after the match. And apparently he said that the only sound on that bus was the sound of Chris Weber crying to his mum. Pretty chilling stuff. Yep. So I guess we've got to get onto the legacy of this, knife, And there's a fair bit of legacy to look at from a fair few different angles. Oh, absolutely there is. Fascinating. But for me, interestingly enough, if it can, the legacy almost starts 11 years earlier. And if we go back to the 1982 championship game, another game that went the way of North Carolina. Well, it's very important for Dean Smith's legacy. Do you know what I learned in researching for this last night? Dean Smith was initially a golf coach. Yeah, right. Yeah, he was in a playoff against another coach and they said, whoever has the lowest score is our golf coach. And that's how he became what? the North Carolina. Oh, I don't know. It was it was the Air Force, I think it was. Yeah, it wasn't North Carolina at that point. But yeah. God, it's a shame he didn't win four <laughs> championships. He only won two. Yes. Do you know what's crazy about those two? They're in the same stadium, the New Orleans Superdome. And they were as a result of kind of chokes, mm. which I think you're gonna you're gonna mention now. Yeah. So any basketball fan who's kind of watched Michael Jordan through his college career will know this as the game that Jordan hit the jumper to effectively beat Patrick Ewing's Georgetown team. What a lot of people forget about this though, is that after that shot, 
James Worthy went for a steal and was caught out of position, but Georgetown's Fred Brown inexplicably passed the ball back to him, and North Carolina almost dribbled out the clock and oh, won the game. I watched that footage last night. What a brain snap. It, it's actually worse than Weber, I think. I think Just it is. Just passing it to the opposition. <laughs> like, yeah. So, wow. so this sort of brain fade choke had actually happened before. Yes. And had directly influenced North Carolina's legacy. And a bit of a teaser. They say it's as a result of a curse, but that's for another episode too when we look at sports curses. Mm-hmm. So before we, I guess, go into the NBA legacy and Chris Webber's legacy more closely, I want to quote from a Shams Sharania article from The Athletic. Chris Webber unplugged on the Hall of Fame, the Fab Five, getting past that timeout, today's NBA and more. Pretty wordy. Yeah, it's a long title. It's like an essay for a title. (laughs) It is long. It is long. So this is Webber, direct quote. I went home after that. I needed love and I went to my parents' house and just sunk in depression, got my mum's cooking and all that stuff. Three days later, my mum comes to me with a timeout license plate. (laughs) But it's not as bad as it sounds. She starts a foundation and we're helping kids go to school. I was never around people that would let me feel sorry for myself. My father's like, you're about to be the number one pick. What do you feel sorry for? And that's what I'm proud of, he explained. If there's one that I would ever have to show my son or daughter, it would be the timeout game. Because I was killing. I had 23 points, 11 rebounds, and I was the best player on the floor. And the worst moment of my life happens. And after that, your dad was still a bad man. He's obviously, this is what he would say to his kids. I want you to study the game, see how great he must have been before that to even get his team there. And then that didn't stop him and his momentum kept going. So no, 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 no. I've been fighting to make sure that's an example for those that come up after me and inspire other people. I've always tried to keep it in perspective while accepting the pain. Accepting the pain. <laughs> I wish you'd done that whole thing in the Mr. T voice. <laughs> it's it a bit much, but I pity the fool. But it's a nice story. Maybe a little bit of revisionist history because there was a long time he wouldn't talk about it. But it's great he talked about it now. And it's great that he kind of turned it around. But I've jumped the gun history. Before we get back to Chris Webber, what about the Michigan legacy? Yeah. So interestingly, if they'd actually won that game, Michigan would later in 2002 have probably been stripped of the title anyway. Yes. Because several players, including Weber, Maurice Taylor, and Robert Tractor Trailer, were caught up in this scandal involving a loan shark or a booster or whatever you want to call it, named Ed Martin. So what they've done is they've taken money from him, which is essentially money laundering from illegal gambling operations. And as a result, the NCAA removed their amateur status. Now, Michigan was actually stripped of all of their wins from that season in 2002. They placed themselves into a two-year probation period and withdrew themselves from all tournaments. Michigan has been back to the championship game twice since then. They lost to Louisville in 2013 and Villanova in 2018. That 2018 team, they were good. Oh, Jay Triano, yeah. Very good coach. They had Mo Wagner. They had Muhammad Ali Abdurrahman starting, Duncan Robinson and Jordan Poole off the bench. But Robinson and Poole went one of eight for three points in that game. Ouch. Which is really, really disappointing. And Villanova, man, that was a freight train of a team. Listen to the guys they had on this team. Mikel Bridges, Amari Spellman, Jalen Brunson, Eric Pascal, and then it was Dante DiVincenzo off the bench who killed them with 31 points and two of the biggest blocks you will ever see. He had a very good final four, yeah. He very, really did. Very good. My understanding is that the reason that Jalen and Chris didn't talk for so long, and they were like best mates, basically, the Fab Five, is because Jalen was pissed that Weber lied in the grand jury thing. And, and Jalen reckons that had he told the truth, he would have actually been okay because he had a pre-existing relationship with him. And this booster kind of stuff is only if it starts at college, but he'd actually known him prior to college. So Jalen's pissed off because all his college records are now gone. Mm. Yeah. So it's it's the ripple effects. Yep. So sticking with Michigan's Shui before we get back to Weber, let's look at the other guys. 
Yeah, so looking at the legacy for the rest of the Fab Five, now Jalen Rose, he had a pretty solid career. He made the NBA Finals once with Indiana in 2000, but unfortunately he never won anything. Jimmy King won a CBA championship for the Quad City Thunder. Ray Jackson didn't have any professional success. Only Jawan Howard managed the ultimate prize. He won two championships in 2012 and 2013 with the Miami Heat at the ages of 39 and 40. Basically as a playing coach. Yeah, he was was a statue. Yeah. And even then, he had seven points and one rebound in nine games in 2012 and didn't log a single minute in 2013. Wow. So that shows you just how little he actually did for those teams. Yeah, yeah. So on to Chris Webber. He had a pretty bloody good career. He didn't win that championship, but he did have a very good career. 15 years playing, Rookie of the Year, Hall of Famer eventually. There are a few guys that got him before him, which was a bit funny. He also had an amazing impact on rookie contracts. So they had to bring in the rookie scale not long after he came in because guys were just getting paid obscene amounts of money straight out of college who hadn't proven anything. So that's an interesting legacy too. He wasn't in the movie Blue Chips, And I can't remember if it was the Knuckleheads podcast with Darius Miles and Quinton Richardson or Up in Smoke with Stephen Jackson and Matt Barnes. Stephen Jackson, of course, played for the Sydney Kings. He did. There's the NBL connection. There you go. But he was asked to be in Blue Chips, but he decided he wanted to train instead to prepare for the draft. And so that's where the kind of marriage between Penny and Shaq happened. Mm. Fascinating, isn't it? And then Shaq obviously would have gone to to the team and said, hey, guys, like Penny Hardaway's pretty good. We should probably get him. Now, on paper, you could actually say that maybe Orlando won the trade because they also got three first-rounders in addition to Penny Hardaway for Chris Webber. Yeah. We've gone back and looked at it, yeah. <laughs> We've had a look. I think the only player of note that I could see in there was Mike Miller, who... Was very good. Was very, very good. However, most of them were traded away for other assets and they just ended up being fairly average players. So Yeah. But having said that, Look, Penny Hardaway looked like a generational talent before he was struck down by injury. So, Well, let's face it. Both of them were, weren't they? Yeah. So it's really interesting, Golden State. He actually only played one season there because of the rookie contract stuff. He could opt out after one again, which is partly why they changed the rules. But amazingly, Golden State chose Don Nelson over Weber when Chris refused to play small ball five, which is crazy when you think he would have been the perfect small ball five. Mm. And his game would suit today to a T, wouldn't it? Like, it's incredible. And then, of course, funnily enough, they then fired Don Nelson, I think maybe not even a year after that. So Golden State really screwed the pooch on that one. Just a little bit. He partied hard in Washington. Now there were some marijuana problems, but he claimed that he used it for pain relief because he had some major painkiller issues. He said he had tons of ulcers. He, had, he suffered from constipation. So, look, a lot of people say that weed can be a very good pain relief. I know some people might be cynical about that. Uh, Maybe some players are using it legitimately. Maybe some players aren't using it legitimately. But ironically, he's now the head of a multi-million dollar medical marijuana company located in Michigan. So there you go. Yeah. The Book of Basketball 2.0, so great book. But the podcast is also very interesting. So I listened to the Chris Webber one when we first prepared for this with Bill Simmons. They said that he had career earnings of nearly 200 million. To put that into perspective, that's only behind Michael Jordan, Kevin Garnett and Shaq in the pre-LeBron era. So he earned a lot of coin. And coming full circle, he actually played his last nine games in Golden State, which I forgot. Yeah, I'd, I'd kind of forgotten about that as well. Uh, and now when you mention it, I can actually see him going back there. But... Yeah, I thought Philly for some reason. I don't know why, but that might have been second last. I can't remember. Yeah, but... it would have been. Yeah. But uh, yeah, look, you're right. I mean, he had an amazing career. Averages of 20 points and 10 rebounds a game. Announced as a Hall of Famer this year, funnily enough, as, as we did mention. He only made the conference finals twice, though. Yes, 
And in so, a stacked West. It, well, his contemporaries, Tim Duncan, for example. Once in the West, once in the East. Yes, true. So, yes. So, he lost that heartbreaker we mentioned to the Lakers in 2002, which was incredibly dodgy. And then he lost to LeBron James in 2007 with the Detroit Pistons. Of course. Which is noteworthy because that Cavs team absolutely sucked. Yeah, well, that was an amazing LeBron year, wasn't it? <laughs> amazing. Aren't they all? <laughs> that Detroit series, my God. So I guess we're at the point where we talk about how we rate this. Yes. So I'm going to throw to you first, Nathan. What do you give this out of 10? Well, initially I would have said close to 9 or 10. But having done my research, having watched the game multiple times, I'm actually going to say about a 7. I think that watching the game, yes, okay, Michigan were up with about five minutes left. But UNC take control. And, and watching the game, UNC really look like they're in control. And of course, obviously, I have the benefit of knowing who won. But it does feel like UNC are going to win that game. So even though he made that horrible, horrible mistake, I would think that it's maybe not the only factor. So yeah, I think I'm going to say about 7 out of 10. I'm looking at the overall, yeah, the legacy side of things and the fact that for Chris Weber in particular, okay, he did great in his career, but he never actually won anything individually or, or team-based effectively. He was just a very good player. And the fact that really the only one who had any sort of success was Juwan Howard, and he did that when he was basically at retirement age. Yeah. Yep. So I, I actually do have that one up at a 9 out of 10. And I, I probably added an extra point because of the whole mace thing. <laughs> I think that makes it worse. <laughs> But it was a very, very good North Carolina team. They really prided themselves on defense and they played superbly defensively down the stretch. And look, they weren't perfect either. There was a North Carolina player who steps on the sideline late in the game on a trap that, who knows, maybe we'd be talking about him choking if things had been different. So let's that's interesting too. Down, down the middle, 7.9. 7.9, all right. Let's there we go. So maybe let's finish this little case on a Kurt Heelan article. Chris Weber on how the timeout game both did and did not define him. I quote, it ultimately was a basketball game. All of us, including Weber, will face more consequential tragedies in our lives. But sport is always a mirror held up to people and society. And when faced with the worst moment of his basketball career, Weber responded with an impressive Hall of Fame worthy NBA career. Plus he responded off the court by becoming a person more dedicated to others and service. He also had a pretty good commentary career. Jalen Rose has gone right in the commentary stakes too and the talking head stakes. So... He did all right in the end. Damn you, Kurt Heelan. Now it's a 6 out of 10. <laughs> and now, what made Stu say bloody hell? Well, the bloody hell this week takes us back to the Mexican Open from last month at time of recording, obviously. We, yes, just, we still don't know when this will be released. <laughs> yeah. And it comes down to a pretty piss poor sanction from the ATP following a pretty piss poor effort oh, from one, one Alex Ferrov. Mate. So for anyone who somehow missed this, there was a pretty close call in their doubles match and Sparov has absolutely lost his mind after match point gone across and destroyed his racket on the umpire's chair missed his feet a couple of times oh it was borderline assault it was yeah I would it say it was close I would say so yeah now we kind of conjectured at the time oh what's what sort of penalty would be a decent sort of penalty for this and we sort of said oh a few months suspension and quite a hefty fine would be great well i think i said six months but i, I wouldn't have been all that surprised or disappointed if they'd ruled him out for the rest of 2022 to be honest and so we finally had the results come through and they have handed him a suspended eight-week ban. Oh, it's outrageous. Don't hit any more umpires or we'll give you two months. Oh, man. I can't believe it. 
I can't believe it. Eight week ban and a $25,000 fine, but suspended. Oh, so the question, of course, here is did the administrators choke? Absolutely. They yeah. <laughs> like, what do you have to do to get suspended properly? I saw a quote from Serena Williams today on CNN where she said that if that had been me, they would have not only suspended me, they would have put me in jail. Basically, yeah. I mean, that's paraphrasing, but I, I mean, I am dumbfounded. He got off so lightly, it's not funny. He came so close. And not only did he smash his racket around the guy's legs, he actually then went back and did it again. Yeah. The other weird thing is that he gave the broken racket to a fan as a memento. Yeah. Like, who wants that? Well, oh, just even that decision is a weird one for me. Did, like, did Djokovic give the ball that he hit the lounge <laughs> yeah, with yeah. to a fan? Here's a, here's the spot where it hit her in the throat. And well, that's not a Serbian accent at all. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it's it's a it just defies belief. Like this is very very new news at time of recording. That's only been handed down today, so we're still scratching our heads about this one. But my goodness, it is an absolute joke. It is an absolute choke. What have you done, ATP? You dickheads. Indeed. Bloody hell. Bloody hell. So, Stewie, next we go to Super Bowl 51 and a four-game suspension that Tom Brady served at the start of the season for Deflategate, now a very distant memory. Let's look at the Atlanta Falcons choking to the New England Patriots. So coming into this game, the 14-2 and Patriots were expected to beat the 11-5 and Atlanta Falcons. And they did. They sure did. But my God, they shouldn't have. They sure shouldn't have. Now, to reference something that you said at the start of Choke Special 1, you asked the question, can a team that's not expected to win choke? So effectively, can an underdog choke? Yes, yep. And we said at the time, yeah, absolutely they can. It can be a game that you're expected to lose, but you find yourself in a position where you shouldn't lose, and all of a sudden you can. So this is exactly that. Context is everything. I dare say we probably thought about this when we were talking about that. I think so. Now, I have to apologize in advance. There is a bit of detail on this one, but it is just such a monumental series of events to get there. My goodness. In the first half of this one, Atlanta's defense was insanely good. They stopped drive after drive. And after Tom Brady threw a pick six to Robert Alford, the Falcons led 21 to nothing. That's right. Alford took it 82 years. 82 years. It's a slow one. I'm getting there, you bastards. Run, Forrest. <laughs> That's absolutely right, Stewie. Rob Olford took it 82 yards to the house for a touchdown. Wouldn't be too many pick sixes from Tom Brady, I would imagine. The other important thing to think of at this stage is that the previous best comeback in Super Bowls was 10. So at 21-0 up, they're thinking they're pretty good at that point. Yeah. And Matt Ryan was the MVP, of course. So they would have had a lot of belief. Now, the Falcons could easily have had another pick when Brady's arm was hit during a throw late in the half. But fortuitously for them, it landed with a teammate and ended up in a field goal. 21 to three at the half. And Tevin Coleman actually made it 28 to three with five minutes gone in the third quarter on this one. So funnily enough, Stewie, I actually watched this one in Sydney. My brother and I were over there for a couple of concerts, Opeth at the Opera House and Guns N' Roses. And this, I think this was between those two gigs. And so we're watching in our crappy little hotel and I'm chatting away with my friend at the time. And I'm, I'm basically saying, this is Devontae Freeman's MVP to win. Surely the Falcons have got this in the bag. My goodness, they did not. And it's worth noting that at this point, New England, who had the best defense in the league, were being smashed by the best offense in the league. They couldn't score against the 27th ranked defense in the league that the Falcons had. The first seven possessions, they go punt, punt, fumble, punt, interception, field goal, punt. That is so un-Tom Brady. It's so pretty bad reading, yeah. It, it yeah. is. Yep. But then it happened. On the next drive, fourth and three on their 46-yard line, Brady hits Danny Amendola before running 15 yards himself, and eventually he hits James White for the first touchdown of the game. 
Brady wasn't known for running either, so that was a really key run. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that the Atlanta offense at one stage was off the field for over an hour because of the long Super Bowl halftime. And this is where the experience, I think, really comes to the fore here, because obviously the Patriots, it wasn't their first rodeo. And Bill Belichick, when he used to prepare for Super Bowls, other than videotaping the opposition, for example, he would actually... Zing! (laughs) Sorry, couldn't help it. Carolina Panthers. He would drill the team to kind of prepare themselves for the lengthy halftime break. Something very canny, I think, and something that maybe Atlanta should have done. But still, it did not look like their day. Stephen Goskowski missed the extra point. And to put that into perspective, entering that season, Goskowski had missed one extra point in his 10 years in the league. And that was before they moved the extra point back as well. So it was about as gimme-ish as it could have been. So it's still 28-9 to nine entering the fourth. Now, Goskowski just snuck in another field goal to make it 28-12 to 12 early in the fourth. The Falcons' probability of winning up 16 with nine minutes left, was actually 99.6%. Now, to put that in perspective, not winning from there is the equivalent of losing eight consecutive coin flips. It just beggars belief. So following that, probably the biggest play of the game in terms of the outcome is on the third play of the next drive. You mentioned Devontae Freeman and how he'd been having such a great game. He actually missed a very key block, though, on Dante Hightower, who then went on and sacked Matt Ryan, causing this fumble on the Falcons' 25-yard line. Brady converts a third and 11, which leads to a touchdown for Amendola following that. And then White took the direct snap and ran in a two-point conversion. Absolutely brilliant play. And so I think at that point, everyone just kind of felt like Atlanta was holding on. Well, maybe if they'd run the ball properly and actually run it more than they did, they might have held on. Mm. This is the problem. So Ryan managed to get the Falcons down to field goal range after a phenomenal pass to Julio Jones on the sideline. Basically at his peak Julio as well. And then another nice pass to Mohamed Sanu on third and 23. Funnily enough, he ended up at the Patriots. But another mini choke. So a hold on Jake Matthews cost them 10 yards and put them back out of range. Ah, penalties. And they ended up having to punt. Yep. And that goes on and makes such a big difference. Oh, those three points would have helped. It really would have. Yep. On the next drive, Brady was pressured on the goal line and threw a pretty average pass. But Brian Poole fell over and the pass landed about three feet in front of him instead of being another likely pick six. Yeah. And then the massive moment, two minutes, 23 left in the game. Brady throws a bullet down the middle to Julian Edelman and Orford got a big piece of it. It popped up. Edelman managed to beat three Falcons to the ball to make this catch for a 23-yard reception and not just make the catch, but also readjust his hands with the ball sitting oh, about it's magnificent. four inches off the ground. And it's got to be said, prior to this, he actually had an uncharacteristically bad game for him. But geez, he made the most of it at the end. He did. If you watch the slow motion of that catch and see him holding this ball literally inches off the ground and have to actually readjust. Oh, it's nuts. It's just playing with fire. And somehow he managed to hold on. This drive would ultimately lead to James White again scoring on a one-yard run and another two-point conversion to tie the game and take it to overtime. And can I just mention at this stage, shame on Mark Wahlberg. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Massive Patriots fan Uh, left the game before the comeback began. Yes. Apparently had a sick child or something. Put him in the corner. Yeah, I know, right. It's the Super Bowl for Christ's sake. Jesus Christ. (laughs) And of course, going into overtime, wouldn't you know it, the Patriots win the coin toss. Yeah, of course, that dreaded coin toss. Brady would make play after play, get them down to the red zone, and they had one chance, the Falcons. Vic Beasley missed an interception on a throw to the corner. And once that happened, you knew it was coming. White ran it in on the next play, and the Falcons had choked away their best chance at a Super Bowl. Absolutely, they did. And I've got to say, 
Tom Brady won Super Bowl MVP. And yes, okay, he had 62 passes for 466 yards and two touchdowns. But he did have an interception. James White was the star for mine. He had three touchdowns and a two-point conversion. Those 20 points equaling a Super Bowl record, along with Terrell Davis from the Denver Broncos. So, uh, Brady again, you know, getting well, awards he doesn't deserve. Well, you say one interception. I mean, it could easily have been well, exactly, two, exactly, three. Exactly. And, geez, superstars can have bad games, but they're not bad the entire game generally. And Brady had his moments. He left the door open for the Falcons. They just didn't walk through it. So to go back to that ESPN article, Brady led the Patriots on five straight scoring drives that equaled 31 straight points. The last touchdown wrapped up a 34-28 victory, yet felt inevitable and anticlimactic, despite coming in the first ever overtime in the Super Bowl's 51-year history. It's absolutely insane. That 25-point comeback, it broke the previous record of 10, as you mentioned, the largest fourth-quarter comeback in playoff history. It's insane. Oh, it is insane. So, Shui, legacy time. Where do we have this? It's a big one. This was just the second time the Falcons ever made the Super Bowl. And since then, they've won one wildcard game. Do you know what's funny? The first time was the Simpsons episode, Atlanta Falcons. They were Broncos. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They lost that one too. They've had losing records the last four seasons now. They finished at 7-10 and this season for second bottom in the NFC South. Dewey, they have never recovered. So in 2020... The Falcons became the first team in NFL history to lose back-to-back games leading by 15 or more points in the final quarter. They have a legacy of choking. Yeah, they do. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. And it's unfortunate because this is a city that has been craving success in the Big Four. The Atlanta Hawks haven't won an NBA championship since 1958 when they were in St. Louis, Louis, which is nearly 900 kilometres from Atlanta. (laughs) Major League Baseball has been their most successful sport for the city, hasn't it? Yeah, well, they won the World Series in 1995. And at the time we recorded previously, we didn't really know, but they won the 2021 World Series as well. With a lockout, we'll never know when that will be defended, but they will be defending it at some point. Yep. And they don't even have a hockey team. Yes. Thankfully, the Georgia Swarm in the National Lacrosse League won in 2017 as well. And Atlanta United in Major League Soccer in 2018 took out national titles. How's their Carbody team? Uh, I'm not sure, actually. The the Atlanta Armadillos. Have, have, <laughs> I like it, yeah. No, I, I, I imagine they don't have it, but, uh, oh. but certainly for a fan base that has been craving silverware forever and a day, this would have meant so much to them. Oh, it absolutely would have. And they could have beaten one of the greatest players and one of the great teams of all time. So they just absolutely fucking blew it. Yeah. I'm pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we score the chokes, Stewie? I mean, how can it be anything other than a 10? Yep. You've got one of the biggest chokes of all time in terms of the, well, certainly the biggest in terms of the score. The comeback. The comeback, the situation, the legacy it's left. I just can't see any way this is less than a 10. So, Stewie, for me, the choke falls firmly at the feet of then-coach Dan Quinn. He managed to last a few seasons after that, but the play calling was shit out. For the Atlanta Falcons as a team, at one stage they were up 25 points. For them to only have 18 carries as a team, they should have been pounding the ball. They should have been running at every chance they got. And part of me wonders if they were trying to justify Matt Ryan's MVP in some weird way against Tom Brady. He absolutely screwed this up. The play calling was fucking shithouse and they kind of deserved to lose because of him. He choked big time, big time. Well, I might extend that to the coaching staff. I don't know if he was calling plays because he's more defensive minded actually i will give the entire atlanta falcons coaching staff including dan quinn at the helm 10 out of 10 
Has to be. Absolutely. 10 out of 10, Chuck. All right, sure. You know what that music means. Final thoughts time. Well, I guess the big thing for me is people run the fucking football. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) I hate watching the Patriots win Super Bowls. I had to watch that footage so many bloody times. We had some false starts with this one. This one was a bit cursed. It's done. We'll we'll do curses in the future, but yeah. We never have to watch it again. (laughs) Oh, we got there in the end. But look, a a couple of very, very interesting chokes. And obviously the story of Chris Webber is one that will live on in infamy in in the world of basketball. So yeah, great fun. Oh, I love doing these specials. Until next time, I'm Nath. And I'm Stu. We are the Sportplex. Sportplex.